Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So tell me, how was your week? My good, in quotation marks, health seems to be holding. I, uh, I feel fine. That's great. Doing more and more physical stuff. And you finding that you're kind of incrementally increasing things day by day or you're just kind of living normally now? I'm, I was very conscious last week of doing too much walking. So I gave myself a couple of days off because mm-hmm. I don't want to overdo it. But life is just so busy at the moment. Like I'm running from one place to the other. I just do not have any time to even rest. The the kind of, I know it's not a jump back into real life, but it, we are just operating now back at normal uh, life, aren't we? Pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, but at a time when COVID is absolutely exploding again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in terms of busyness, like it's end of term school plays school concerts athletic events sports days it's non-stop podcast to record people to interview <laughs> what's lovely though now is that we're getting a lot of people emailing us and asking for to come on the show experts which i think is a huge compliment yeah to all your hard work and it's really uh, and to yours snoring and also even people saying that they would really like to hear this person people are really sort of engaging in that way yeah. Which is really nice. It is nice. We're getting a lot of messages about the Vedicinals 9. And just to say to everyone, we've already interviewed the people at Vedicinals 9 and we will be pushing that out soon. Yes. It's just we've had a backlog of people. Well, backlogs makes it sound negative. We've <laughs> got some fantastic interviews in the can and it's just a matter of us being well enough and have sufficient time to edit them and get them out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but we've got some great things coming up. Yeah, I can't wait. How was your week, Emily? I think mine was fairly positive. So I had a bit of a dip, didn't I? After my euphoria of feeling well, I did have a bit of a dip. I have had some quite bad headaches. I have had some pretty bad nausea. And uh, I think the big difference now is that I have learned a little bit more about how to pace. And I do try to listen to my body and build in the rest period so I do think that I'm managing the crashes a little bit better and I did manage to do a full day yoga workshop and I still feel fine so I think incrementally definitely still improved on on where I was maybe kind of two months ago yeah I mean I'm really worried about getting sick again like I really am because I think I'm feeling really well and I just know another infection is just going to bring everything back. I don't, I don't feel cured. I just feel healthier. It's really nice to have this period of feeling okay, isn't it? But you do have to live in not fear, but, or maybe we should be living in fear. You just have to be ultra cautious because we do not want to be getting it right now. No. And I think this is part of the idea that we have been kind of permanently damaged or permanently susceptible or vulnerable to COVID or any infection now because our body reacts in a certain way. It's now trained, you know, almost that if you're a bit unwell or a bit, if you've overdone it, these are all the things that are going to happen to you. 
Yeah, there are recurring themes now coming through these interviews that we do. And once again, off the back of last week's interview, today's interview goes into this idea of autoimmune disease. So we've had such a knock to the immune system that anything that then happens to us, we don't necessarily have the ability to fight. And I don't know if you ever recover from that. Yeah. I mean, we both have people in our immediate family who've got autoimmune. Yeah. And they measure their days in good days and bad days, but they're always under this chronically sick umbrella. And the other thing is that they are permanently on medication. And that is actually something that we've not really explored because this idea of autoimmunity is possibly only more coming to the fore. And maybe that is still only within our echo chamber, the echo chamber of misery that I like to call it. (laughs) So this week we interviewed an ophthalmologist, which may seem a bit strange when you're talking about long COVID. So we spoke to Dr. Bettina Hoberger, who is a uh, specialist at the Department of Ophthalmology in Erlangen in Germany. What was really interesting about Germany in particular to me, and it's a conversation I had last night, actually, is that the German medical profession is the doctors are a bit more free to try different things. And they're also more open to different forms of medicine, be it um, alternative therapies. And so you can go and see a doctor in Germany who will give you conventional medicine, but then also prescribe you supplements and herbs and other things as well. Which really interesting. Well, it's a much more holistic approach. And it's one thing that I've found with various doctors and things that we're talking to here. It's quite contradictory in terms of take medication, take supplements, but joining it together does not really, really happen here. Not properly, I don't think. The fact that she's a, an ophthalmologist, she makes an interesting point, is that the eyes are a window to the rest of the body. So what is happening in the eyes is reflective of what is happening in the rest of the body. And her work in, in glaucoma actually led her to trial a drug called BC007, which I know that a lot of the long COVID community have heard about. And it had quite interesting results. But studies are very small. Minute, I would say. But potentially interesting, something worth investigating further. Let's talk about how you first encountered long COVID patients and what you noticed about them. This started in, yeah, about two and a half years ago um, with my normal clinical life. In my clinical life, I see patients here at our department of ophthalmology in-house. And also we go outside and see patients which are not able to come to us. In in this duty, I saw patients with COVID, severe COVID, and were at the intensive unit. And during this job, um, I recognized that there are alterations at the eye, which you can see. And additionally, there is a lady which um, I respect very much. It's Frau Ganselmeier. And together with her, the idea was born that she told me the virus itself can affect the endothelium. Um, that was not so known at the time, but it was in, in February, March um, 2020. And we started here focusing on that because when the virus itself could affect the endothelium and that the inner wall of a blood vessel, then um, there could 
be the result which is called um, endothelial dysfunction. And that's a very well-known um, topic in glaucoma research. And glaucoma research is that what I did the last years. And therefore, we thought, okay, we can take what we know from this endothelial dysfunction and put this in um, COVID research. There, we didn't know that long COVID would exist. We started with COVID and um, built up a study um, where we invited patients after COVID infection to our department of ophthalmology and screened for ocular disorders and therefore for retinal um, disorders especially. And am I right in thinking that by looking at the eye in that way, that is representative of the endothelium or the capillaries throughout the rest of the body, but it's just one area that we're actually able to look at it? In ophthalmology, there's a sentence, the eye is the window to the body. That's a common theory which we use in our normal clinical life. We see patients with a bad arterial hypertension and you can see it in the eye. We see patients with a bad diabetes and we can see this in the eye. We have children with with special diseases which the first sign is in the eye and afterwards they go to the pediatricians. Therefore, we are the key key point um, and therefore we can split the patient to the other doctors. That's known and that's, that's a normal clinical work which we do every day. We are not unfamiliar with that looking in the eye and this is a mirror to the whole body. The blood vessels in the eye are the same which are in the, in the whole human body. What was happening in the eye then? What, what could you see? We saw that we have a special technique in ophthalmology. We can make the finest capillaries visible. And this is only um, possible in two areas, in the retina and in the nail fold. And retina, this technique we do have only a few years ago. It's perhaps five years, seven years, 10 years. It's, it's a very novel technique. And the speciality of this technique that it's non-invasive, meaning that you have a non-contact um, technique which you make a special photo. And with this photo, you can do it in a software and afterwards you get numbers out of it. And so you can quantify what you see in this photo and the photo is called OCTA scan. And with this OCTA scan, you can make the capillaries at two areas in the eye visible around the macula. It's where you have your highest visual acuity and it's around the optic nerve. It's where um, the nerve fibers are bundled and go through the, um, to, towards the brain. That's right at the back, is it? Yes, yes. And in the back of the eye. And, and that's called optical coherence tomography and geography, is that yeah. right? The OCTA? Yes. And with this technique, we saw that um, patients after a COVID-19 infection could have a lower vessel density. And vessel density is a parameter of OCT angiography, which counters the capillary numbers. So you can see it. They do have not much lower vessel densities, a bit lower than normal. And that fits totally in the idea because these patients don't have a visual acuity problems. They have visual acuity from 100%. And this is a low um, restriction of blood flow in the finest capillaries, which in our idea makes problems over the time. Not in one moment, but if you have this over one month or several months or one year, then the symptoms can occur. And so in real terms, lower vessel density, you've, you've said lower vessel density and you've said restriction. Can you describe what you're actually seeing? A lower vessel density represents a restricted blood flow 
at this time point in this OCTA scan. And this restricted um, blood flow could be to two things. Either the blood vessel has been gone, it's death, or there is an occlusion in this blood vessel. Or a too slow or too high flow. These are the options. And meaning that it's the blood flow in this vessel is altered. Restricted, lower, or totally away. I mean, this is totally really interesting for us because when I had COVID and then developed long COVID, and Emily says the same thing, we noticed that our eyesight sometimes is worse, and I would say even 30% worse, and then would get better, and then again get worse. But I took myself to the optician, and they said, your eyesight's perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. In a normal eye um, examination, you don't visas. this. Right. Your normal wish acuity is good. You don't have a, um, a perimetric field loss, nothing. It's subclinical, you can call it so. But yeah. would that lower vessel density cause us to have changes in our vision? Because both Noreen and I, and I particularly notice when I'm going into a crash, that I actually, I can't, I can't see, I can't read writing. It gets, uh, it gets no. blurred. We don't have measured patients during a crash right now. It, it was in their healthy um, faces, not in crashes and not directly after that, that we did not. If you go like you did in this idea, then you would see and also our I, hypothesis, a, res, a more restriction during a crash. Right. But this we haven't tested right now. And would that cause vision alteration? Could be. You, can't, you can um, imagine that. The lower the vessel density, the lower the blood flow. and uh, That's interesting, Emily. We haven't heard that before, really. No one's really said to us this is a possibility of micro damage to the, to the eye vessels. Yeah. The vessels in the eye are the same in, in the whole human body, and therefore it's, they are occluded and go again open. The, the vessels here, is that they are closed and open, closed and open, closed and opened, and it's always a perfusion, reperfusion. And this over a time point, this up and down, up and down, up and down, you can imagine that that's not so good for the surrounding tissue. No. We, we had a conversation with a Dr. Satish Raj, who's a POTS expert. And again, a lot of the um, things that he is looking at in long COVID is to do with that same blood vessel density, isn't it? We, yeah. we spoke to him at length about it. So you started to see, see people with this slightly lower, right? Subclinical capillary mm -hmm. damage, right? So then what, what was the next step for you? What, what made you try and work on the next hypothesis? Yeah, we built up the study in, in order to make this OCTA examination. That was our beginning. And because I know Han Valukat, it's a cooperation partner, and he told me, oh, it's interesting, there's certainly something in the blood, um, which could be anything about autoimmunity around that. And because we worked together since several years in a collaboration, we gave him um, samples from this patient's which were invited to us after COVID-19 infection, and he found something. He found this um, autoantibodies, which activates GPCR receptors. That was the second um, finding which we had. And then we have to go back to our glaucoma research. We knew from several years before that if glaucoma patients, they also could have one of these special autoantibodies. If this is present in the blood, then the vessel density in the eye or then the capillary 
perfusion in the eye is reduced. This this was a knowledge from a further study which we did several years before, and that was the link between both. We did know that if the these special autoantibodies is called um, beta two adrenergic autoantibody, and the special thing about it that it's not only present in the human body, it can activate a receptor, and this activation is the harmful thing because. A normal human body has a physiological balance. It's, everything works good and is in balance. And if there's something which disturbs the spelling, then everything goes uh, totally different. And then problems can occur if these totally different mechanisms um, passes a threshold. And then the patient's symptoms can occur. That's the idea of that. And with this idea that this autoimmune phenomenon, if this is present, then the capillary microperfusion in the eye is altered, potential being a mirror of the human body, was transferred to patients after COVID, then called long COVID. We did this healing attempt, and the healing attempt with the um, Aptamir BC007, this I did also know from this glaucoma research because this um, Aptamer I wanted to get as healing attempt for glaucoma patients in order to decrease the intraocular pressure in this patient. We do know that there's a link between both and in, in order to enhance the capillary microperfusion. This were two links for resist medications to work in glaucoma patients. And yeah, then we skipped this idea to long COVID. Okay, the... Patients that you mentioned were positive for the GPCR, were they just people who had previously had COVID or were they people who were already showing signs of long COVID? At the time point where we did the study, we said, and it's also in our publication, that these are patients after COVID-19 because we did not know that there would be long COVID. When we wrote the manuscript, yeah. the term long COVID was not known. Afterwards, when it's all published, we went again in the data and we asked the patients what they have on symptoms when they come to us. And we saw that nearly all are um, long COVID. But really? at the time, when we didn't know the term and we couldn't write that because we only said it's after COVID. Explain to us what the autoantibody is. Um, these autoantibodies are small peptides which are in the blood of humans or could be in the blood of humans. and um, they were produced by a B cell and of are of a special immune globulin subtype of G3. And these autoantibodies, the speciality of this um, is that they can activate their target receptors. If they target the beta 2 receptor, then they can activate them. Um, if they target the endothelium um, each, and the adrenergic receptor, then they activate them. And it's always special to the receptor. And long COVID patients showed a pattern of um, four or five of these um, autoantibodies. And after activation, they disturb the cellular balance. That's the idea of these autoantibodies. So then these autoantibodies activate the receptor and then basically causing inflammation, and that's causing the damage? Is that what we think? We do not know. We only know that they can activate the receptors, and this activation is different to the normal activation by the normal physiological agent because it's an overactivation and it causes a receptor desensibilization, meaning that it's totally different to a normal adrenaline or whatever binds normally to the receptor. And what, what works afterwards, we do not know. That's the beginning of research. We don't know what in the cellular targets are different afterwards it's unknown right now 
in a normal response, in a non-long COVID response, are any of these autoantibodies that you've just described activated at a lower level or do you not get that response at all? We do know that this autoantibody phenomenon can also be present in patients with which do not have symptoms of long COVID. It's not the autoantibodies alone. There is knowledge from previous studies that if these autoantibodies are present in a human and there is a coexisting factor, then they work together, not alone, together. Uh, speculating. So someone who has, for example, previous history of asthma or eczema who are prone to kind of these um, over-responses, would that be something that you would look for as a comorbidity? We could, but we don't have the manpower right now for that. <laughs> I say that because Emily and I talk often about how we feel that I, for example, have a lot of allergies, that that may have contributed to my body's overreaction to COVID. Pre-existing factor, any pre-existing, whatever, there must be anything, but we do not know what it is. Yeah, okay. it could be anything. By the time you started looking at the BC007, was it with the emergence of, of long COVID or was it just on the treatment of what you consider to be changes in the capillary of the eye? I'm curious as to whether this was the way that you thought you might be able to treat the retinal capillaries or did you at that time understand that this was a bigger picture and the kind of breadth of long COVID? The idea giving the BC007 to our first patient was to um, remove or function to neutralize these autoantibodies to increase the blood flow in the eye and in the whole human body and to have a look which symptoms would decrease or remove. That was the idea. Not only restricted to the eye, it was extended to the whole human body. And how how long has BC007 been around? Is it something that's been around for a long time and we're just repurposing it? Or is this something new? It's uh, not available right now. It's, an, it's a drug which is in, in a phase two study and meaning that you, you're not able to buy it or so. I know it's not commercially available, um, but are we, is this a repurposing? Because I thought it was for the heart originally. Yeah, um, that's that's also a funny topic. The researcher which developed this or which found this, so it's better to say, this research guys which focus on a special heart disease. Like me, I'm focusing on glaucoma, I'm an eye doctor, and they were focused on uh, dilatative cardiomyopathy. That was their main topic. And therefore, they did know that also present, there are um, autoantibodies against beta-1, I think, receptors. And they had the same idea, neutralizing this autoimmune phenomena in order to increase the, base, the patient's symptoms, focused now on this special heart disease. And we were a sidearm, when, if you could say so, and we were interested in glaucoma because we saw that the same autoimmune mechanism is also in this mechanism involved. And now it has a third arm, long COVID. So had you use the BC007 for the treatment of glaucoma? No, this was a totally first healing attempt at all. Okay. And the first patient was a glaucoma patient with long COVID. Okay. Do these patients come to you for the treatment? Those first few um, patients that you managed, I think it's only four, right? 
the first the first man didn't know that this medication is available at all. He didn't know that this is existing at all. And he came to me, he's a, um, a regular patient from our clinic, and he, it was a normal visit which he had, and he told me about his long COVID symptoms. It was a glaucoma visit. My my job as doctor is, I am a, I'm a ophthalmologist, yes, but if one patient came to me or will come to me or whatever, and he tells me that he has a further problem, I try to help. And that was the starting point for considering to give him this medical drug product, not for his glaucoma disease, because there he was good, um, but for his long COVID symptom. But this were very worse. And is this gentleman the person that becomes the subject of your study that was out in November? Yeah. So tell us what happened when you treated him. We gave him this infusion. It's, um, it was 75 minutes and it worked without any side effects. Um, he was well and healthy and we talked to each other. We were in the same room at that time point. Yeah, and afterwards, his symptoms were decreased, meaning that the, the first, what he told me was that his brain fog was better. And the next symptoms, which which went away, were slowly over the following weeks. And after three or four weeks, I think it was, he was totally symptom-free. Wow. And it's a funny thing at all was we were talking and he told me, oh, his taste, he tasted his, his, his um, eating on Sunday. And I and he, we, he, I was surprised because he told me that his taste was lost. And there he recognized at all that he's taste is again here and no one of us could had the idea that all the taste would come back after that infusion not expected so you've treated so far four patients yeah we treated um, four patients with long covid one patient the first one was a glaucoma patient with long covid and the three further ones were long covid so a single long covid without any idcs and how are they all doing the three patients had the same. Um, they the first thing which was better, all three told me was um, the brain fog. It, it was a clearer thinking when you can say so. And um, then depending how the words the symptoms were, the um, recovery was. And there is one guy which was totally free again after I think it was four four weeks or five weeks again. Um, then we had a lady which was chair wheel boned um, because she could only um, walk a few steps and then it was um, too much for her and it was not possible anymore. And this lady is recovering right now. She's not at the state which she, she had before her COVID-19 infection, but right now she can walk again. She can take care of her family, which, which was not possible before, and uh, an increasing in her uh, life quality. She is not like that she was before the COVID-19 infections, meaning that depending on that where a patient starts, there seems to be an increase or an, an improvement of the clinical symptoms. And this perhaps could be restricted by a threshold which... When, when you have symptoms very long, perhaps there is a, um, a remaining part which can't be removed anymore. There has been damage or scarring or, or something that... It's as, uh, when a cell is death, yeah, you can't um, re 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 remove it and put a new novel in. That's not possible, yeah. It could only that if a cell is restricted in anything, you can improve it. But if, if, when it's away, it's away. 
So how is the BC007 doing this? How does it act? What we know is that it neutralizes the functional activity of these autoantibodies. We don't know the binding site right now. Normally, an immune system produces these autoantibodies all the time, Yeah, meaning that if you remove this from the blood, then it will be built in one day, two days, one week. Yeah, We don't know why these autoantibodies are so long away. It's, it's an, a question we don't know. That's the first time that such a thing occurred. Normally, this come away. It, all rheumatic disorders have to be treated in one day, every day, every month, every week or so. Yeah, it's not normal then to give one time a medication and it's away. It's strange, but it worked. Are you saying that all of those people's recovery is based on that one 75-minute infusion? Yeah. Wow. No repeat, no follow-up. One-time infusion. Right. <laughs> When's the next flight to Germany? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> one thing I, I would like to add because when I tell this so then the idea could be okay you give an effusion once a time and then this autoimmune phenomena is a way for all the life yeah we don't think that is so okay we think that there is a predisposition in the human body that the human body or the immune system reacts by a trigger in a, a different way than it should work meaning that if you can heal it in a phase, we call it so, or in yeah, in a long COVID, when, when you get an infection from COVID once a time, and perhaps you give this BDC 007 and this long COVID symptoms will, would go away, then it's not that it's safe for all COVID-19 infections in the future that never this would occur. That's certainly not that's certainly not so. Meaning that if there's a further infection, then certainly the immune system could work also in the wrong way and produce again long COVID. In our idea of the mechanism, it's a mechanism behind that where you can better the symptoms when there is an acute infection and afterwards symptoms, but it's not that it's totally away for a whole human life. So you run the risk of getting it again if you get COVID again. Yeah, but it's it's like you have an infection, then you get a medicine and it's good. And if you get a further infection, yeah, whatever, you know, the good medication again. And we're not further enough down the road of study to actually know the impact of what happens if you have COVID, take it, get COVID again, have long COVID again, take it again. We, we, we're not far enough to know the implications. No, of no we don't give anyone this medications two times right now. Yeah. This we know because the second patient we give this medication has COVID and then long COVID and we gave him this medication and he was totally symptom free and then we don't know what has happened. Perhaps he got COVID again. We don't know. And he got the symptoms again parallel to the autoantibodies. And meaning that there is something that triggers the immune system or could trigger the immune system again and then the symptoms could occur again so he had a period of wellness and then it came back whether triggered by a fresh infection or not we don't know we don't know by, by what it was triggered it could be triggered by anything which could affect the immune system and the immune system could be affected by any infection it could also be a whatever influenza infection or borrelia infection or 
Noreen and I, something we talk about often on this podcast and to each other is one of uh, the major issues that we have is we have our long COVID flares caused by any kind of virus. It doesn't have to be COVID again. If we get a rhinovirus, we get our long COVID symptoms. Yeah, and then it's not called long COVID, then it's called MECFS. It's the same. It's only a different name, in our opinion. In England, for example, it's really hard to get treatment off license. You know, so you get a drug for one disease, but it's really hard to get it used for another symptom, for example. Really? In, in Germany, you can make it as off-label? Yeah. So this is my question. A lot of things are happening in Germany for long COVID that cannot happen here. So do, are you given a free hand then to say, I think this might work. Let's try it. I don't know how it's in England. <laughs> Therefore, I can't compare. But but you had this idea to give this infusion and you were able to give it without having to check with a million people. Yeah. In, in my job as, as doctor, I am free for doing this. And that was just a case of you going to Berlin Cures and asking for them to give you the medication for this particular trial. Yeah, it was not really that I go to them because we worked several years together and I work with Gerd Valukat since several years. And so we phone right now each three or two or three times a week. And we talked about that. And there was not that I had to write anything formally because we now knew each other for a long time. So then after the initial four patients was it in february this year that you started gathering a larger cohort of patients to do further testing on the bc007 are we right we have right now two projects because we first of all we wanted we we are glad to have the funding from the um, german government yeah. to do this because on our own we were not able to do this study it's cost cost extensive and um, therefore we got um, this funding and now we build up the study for the fa phase two clinical study for um, the BC007 patients with long COVID who do have this autoimmune phenomena. And in this context, you can ask yourself, do you think that every long COVID patient on the whole world would really have a benefit when you gave him this medication. And when you ask yourself, you certainly will um, answer this question with no, because not every long COVID patient is the same. There are different subtypes when you really talk about long COVID. And regarding this, we have right now a second study here, which is also funded now by the Bavarian state. And the aim of this study is that we... Um, develop an algorithm to diagnose long COVID, meaning that, like I told before, that when you have something which you can make visible in the eye and which is altered from normality, or when you can say that there is something in the blood which is not normal, and this is specific for patients after COVID infection, then you can make a real diagnose and not an exclusion diagnose. And due to this concept, we do think right now that there are at least three subgroups of long COVID. One subgroup, which to have this autoimmune phenomena, which we told right now. One um, subgroup, which has the viral persistency in the human body, which perhaps they could improve their symptoms by a further vaccination to um, 
increase the immune system and this immune system should delete the remaining virus particle. And the third subgroup, which we are thinking of that exists, are the patients which do have an organ dysfunction after the acute infection, meaning that perhaps they have a severe pneumonia and afterward they have a fibrosis in the lung and therefore they are restricted in their breathing, perhaps. And these are three different subgroups and these three different subgroups um, require different therapies, vaccination or specific rehabilitation or specific autoimmune um, therapy. Okay. And right now we are screening patients um, and for this diagnostic project, because this is a step before you give someone a therapy. And therefore we subgroup the patients in the three arms and the, the patients which are in the autoimmune arm, they're this patient from this group, we recruit the patient for the medical study with BEC 007. We, we, do, we want to screen 300 patients for the diagnostic study, and this is ongoing right now. We started in December last year, and it's ongoing the whole year. And um, from all these patients, we, screen, we will recruit the patient for the medication study. Okay. So at the moment you have not embarked with this larger cohort because you're still in the process of establishing which subset and you've not yet started them on treatment. Yeah, we don't treat right now. We make these studies parallel, meaning that we are recruiting the patients since um, end of last year and we are developing the study protocol here with our specialist at the university for the medication study. And then we do have to have the medication itself. And the building cures that to add that it will be in autumn this year, that it will would be available for us to make the study, meaning that right now the point is that we do have patients and we have the study protocol and this is no problem to finalize and to, to give it to the BFAM. It's our government regulation, what we have to do when we do those um, studies. And the point is to get the medication. And this um, is in, in autumn this year. What has Berlin Cure said? Why is there a holdup? They told me that it has so long delivery due to the regulation. In our normal study protocol, we wanted to do this medication study right now. Yeah, it was normally planned for June, June, July. Yeah. Have they done other studies on the BC007? That, is, is there any... Are there safety concerns or is there anything that you are aware of that might have slowed the rollout out? It's not known to me that they have anything altered due to the drug itself, meaning that there's nothing new. It's all the same what they have done in the phase two study of their severe heart disease. Their statement was to me, there's nothing changed. It's the same as they did the years before. I, I have no exact answer. What is the regulation problem? It's only a state. It's a statement. There's a regulation, and due to this regulation, the delivery has been, um, yeah. How big is this next clinical study? How many patients are we looking at? The number of patients for this clinical study, which we can do here, was restricted by the price of the drug itself and the value of costs from the government. And this, when you calculate, then you show what you can do best for to do for the study. And right now we can include um, 30 patients. Wow. So it's a very expensive infusion, basically. 
everything in the medicine is, is expensive. Whatever you know, there is yeah. there are medications which cost one hundred thousand or euros. For example, very very novel rheumatic disorders also, and therefore in medicine to talk about costs it's a bit strange because you can get very cheap medications which are available in several years and the range is so large from yeah. a few euros to 100,000 euros it's it's what is expensive how big was the grant that you got for the study from the government we got around 1 million euros for both studies for each each of our studies respectively the diagnostic study does not actually include Berlin cures at, at all that is um completely separate and none of the study includes Berlin cures because they are all um, university initiated studies meaning that they are mutual university governmental studies except for you are reliant on Berlin cures for the treatment for one strand of of one of the studies is there anyone else making anything similar or are there any other products that you have seen that work on the this autoantibody Right now, we are focused on um, BC007 because I, I'm familiar with this autoimmune phenomena since several years, and therefore I focused my power on this to go forward. It and that's enough. Right now. <laughs> well, it's amazing that you, as an ophthalmologist, that you're actually looking at other parts of the body because medicine has become so siloed that one specialist will only look at one thing. You know, here's your heart, but oh, sorry, your leg fell off. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really amazing that you've kind of joined the dots of this disease which is you know so varied thanks definitely something that we are looking for isn't it it's that more holistic approach but as you say as if the eye is the window to the body we probably need to look at all of the symptoms in a much more cohesive way because so many of the things are tied to each other and they're all being yep. taken out and treated individually but the endothelium seems to, uh, to be the roadmap that seems to be yeah. touching yeah. every organ that was the roadmap yeah endothelium and the term endothelial dysfunction that was the starting point once again from the work that patina hoberger has been doing um and their current study that they're looking at there seems to be a correlation with the people that we have spoken to in recent weeks that it does look like long covid has uh potentially multiple strands to it an autoimmune strand a viral persistent strand and the third strand that um bettina is looking at is uh dysfunction after the acute phase so i guess that is more the kind of post hospitalization and the people who have organ scarring from the acute phase so it's kind of coming together with these three strands of versions of long COVID. Yeah, which is why we're a syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Now, there has been some backlash on social media against burning cures who have developed BC007 for not moving fast enough. And we've tried to speak to Berlin cures about it. And actually, you know, when you got a statement from them, yeah, so this is what I got back from Berlin Cures, and they do reference Dr. Hoberger as well, so I'm just going to read it verbatim. We had two meetings with Dr. Hoberger where the situation was explained to her. The latest batch was produced and is currently in quality control. 
We expect it to be released in September. We will update the IMPD with the quality data from the latest batch as mandated by the law, and then the qualified person can release the batch. By the way, all activities have to be financed by our own means, and we do not receive any funding from any public institution. Once the drug product is released by the QP and once a contract is closed, we will supply BC007 to Erlangen University as agreed for their investigator-initiated study in long COVID patients. In parallel, we plan to initiate a multi-centre study that will produce data that can be supported and expedited for approval for BC007 in long COVID patients. Uh, He then goes on to say the Erlangen study will be meaningless for the approval process. So we were happy from your communication with them that they are actually following due process and actually being quite sensible about the way in in which they're operating. And I feel like, you know, Twitter and social media can get away with us sometimes. And, you know, Berlin Cures is not a huge big pharma giant. Uh, It's in fact, it's a startup with no products on the market and 11 employees. And it sounds like they're trying to do something that could have potential. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.